Welcome back, Portfolio Rescue. We always appreciate your questions, comments, feedback. Email us, askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Duncan, hit us with that liftoff video. Okay. We have to see it. <laughs> Got to fade the music first. Okay, let's do it. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. Liftoff. Don't get the koala bear. You know, but. well, that's what people like about it. You know, I thought that people would be tired of it. There's a lot of requests for the koala bear now. I'm bullish on koalas. We got a new one at our zoo here. Uh, today's portfolio rescue is sponsored by Liftoff. Duncan, I created a Liftoff account for myself and my wife eh, two or three years ago. And since it's powered by Betterment, what you can do is create your own goals. And I just created a goal for each one of my children. So there's a George, a Kate, and a Libby, all three of my kids. And I created a sub account for each of them because I want to teach them the value of compound interest. We'll show them like cost and value over time. So I'm investing just a little bit in there, 50 bucks a month, call it, each month for them. And then I'm matching anything that they put in there. So I told my daughter, listen, you get 40 bucks for your birthday. Take half of it, spend it on yourself, buy your little toys, but then take 20 bucks and I'm going to match 20 bucks. That's 100% return. So I'm trying to incentivize them to save. I'm trying to introduce them to the financial markets to show, maybe I should show them now. I should show them their accounts now to show them they're down. And then I want to establish a little baseline for them. So when they go out into the real world, they're 18 or 21 or however old they are when they finally are uh, out of my hair. Maybe a down payment for their first place, wedding, that kind of thing, first month's deposit, maybe three beers in Brooklyn if they move to New York, <laughs> that sort of thing. So it's, if you want it's a little nice more, you're not even taking a tax cut or anything, you know? No, I'm, I'm giving them more money. I'm, I'm like their 100% 401k match. Liftoffinvest.com, if you want to learn more, you can talk to an advisor there, you can set up an automated account, it's pretty sweet. So last week, we kicked off the show with a question from a young viewer who said, this is my first bear market. Are they all like this? And we gave some advice to young people, which is actually relatively simple in these times. It, it's just Nick Majuli, his book, Don't Stop Buying, that, that's, or Just Keep Buying. That's pretty much it. Like You don't stop investing because there's a bear market. You, you actually want to keep investing for sure then. So the advice for young people is pretty simple. Keep saving. Don't get scared out of the market. And then, of course, we had a couple retirees who said, that's great. That's easy for young, not easy, simple, but not easy for young people. What do, you, what do you say to retirees doing with this? I don't have the human capital anymore. I'm not saving. I don't have as much time. And I'm dealing with this bear market in stock and stocks and bonds. What, what do you think? And so here's, here's what I tell a retiree. The good news is the returns for a diversified investor have been lights out coming into this year. right? So I just looked at the simple three-fund Vanguard portfolio. So you have U.S. Stock Market Index Fund, International Stock Market Index Fund, Total Bond Market Index Fund. right? That's a three-fund Vanguard portfolio. Through year-end 2021, before this year, over 10 years, that portfolio of a 60-40 three-fund Vanguard was like 8.5% per year for 60-40. And that's a time when bonds did pretty terribly. So obviously, if you had more stocks, you did, you did much better. That portfolio was down almost 20% this year. So that's what people are saying. This, this is terrible. I just retired. What now? Even if you include the 20% down this year, over the last 10 years, it's still up 5% per year. That's with two bear markets and bonds giving you basically nothing. So if you are more than heavily in stocks, since 2012, the S&P is up like 12.5% per year. That's with this bear market at the lows. Russell 2000 is up almost 10% per year. International stocks haven't done quite as well. So here's the thing. If you're a retiree, you've been building up financial assets for a while. You did pretty well heading into this thing. So this is just kind of the other side of those wonderful returns that you experienced to this point. If you own your home, you have a massive amount of equity in it, right? Maybe housing prices roll over a little bit. 
you've you've seen such huge gains there. You're doing fine. It's no fun to see the value of your portfolio of your house go down a little bit, but the gains you've experienced in the last 10 or 15 years should more than make up for any losses you've seen this year. Plus, there's some silver lining to the carnage this year. It's no fun because that other side of your portfolio, the anchor bonds, have not helped much if you have had any duration on, but yield is back for the first time in a long time. So a year ago, these are the yields for short-term bonds, corporate bonds and high-yield bonds. Short-term government bonds yielded about 30 basis points. Corporate bonds were a little over 2%. High-yield bonds, 4.4%. One year ago from today. Today, short-term government bonds yield 4.4%. So in one year, short-term government bonds now yield what high-yield bonds were earning a year ago. High-yield is now 9%. Corporate bonds are approaching 6%. Muni bonds, you can probably get anywhere in the 5 to 7% range on a tax-equivalent basis. So, and... You have these Treasury Inflation Protected Securities tips that we're going to talk about in a question in a minute here. So as a retiree, you finally have higher expected returns in the safe part of your portfolio. So yes, you've had to deal with some losses to get there. But now I think you can actually look at this and and for the first time in, I don't know, 12, 15 years, say there's a safe part of my portfolio I can actually put some money in that's giving me some yield where I don't have to take all this volatility. So as a retiree, yes, you're dealing with losses, but you're actually in a much better position today than you were a year ago taking away the losses, right? So going forward, you're in a much better position today. Yeah, it's it's crazy to see the way that the questions, you know, change over time that we're getting. We're seeing a lot more bond questions, a lot more tips questions uh, now. Then there for a while, it was like bonds Bonds were so uncool, left for dead. No one wanted anything to well, do with them. And they were kind of dead, and bonds didn't do much. And obviously now they, they've lost money. But now for, for finally, you can have some 4 to 6% yield in relatively safe bonds. Obviously, if interest rates keep going up, that's going to ding you a little bit, right. but if interest rates keep going up, guess what? Your future returns are going up as well. So I think the first one here we have about tips, actually. Uh, we've talked about them a little bit in the past. So let's get in the first one here. Yeah. This is a segue. Okay, uh, so Seamus writes— I'm a pro, Duncan. I'm a pro. <laughs> Seamus writes, I'm a new investor and still building up my emergency fund and paying off debt. I just discovered Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, or TIPS, and I'm thinking of diverting my monthly emergency fund payments going forward into a TIPS ETF in my Roth IRA account. I'm not currently maxing out my Roth, and I see this as a good low-risk way to max it out, but the yield seems too good to be true. Am I missing anything? For context, I'm a government employee with a solid pension that uh, would pay out 76% of my final take-home pay every year once I retire at 62, 2% for every year worked. I'm also starting to put money into a 457B, so any money... uh, in the Roth would be a bonus. I don't know what a 457B is. I gotta be honest. No, 457 is like a, it's like a 401k for nonprofits, essentially. Oh, I thought that was 403B. So there's another oh, you're right. one. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. I think yeah, it's more I, of a I don't know one. what this one is. Also, Seamus, great name. Duncan, you went to Scotland, right? For your honeymoon a little bit? I, I did. There had to be yeah, a lot yeah. of Seamuses there, right? Uh, probably. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you missed out a, a few weeks ago, I think it was the episode we did with Josh. We did a tutorial on tips, and someone asked us at the time, why are tips down when, when inflation is higher? And we did a whole thing on that. The, the short answer is interest rates have risen. But the nice thing about rising rates for bonds, as I kind of mentioned a little bit ago, is eventually those higher yields turn into higher future returns. So, John, let's do a chart on for the five-year tips yield. So this is from the Federal Reserve. You can see this is since 2010, and these are the yields on tips. And what this essentially is showing you is a yield on tips. So, again, this is Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, the yield you get here, you tack on inflation to it. So you can see throughout from 2020 through early 20, late 2021, you were getting negative yields in tips. And so it was close to negative 2% at 
and then you could add inflation on top of that. So if your yield was negative 2%, you're basically buying that bond at a discount, and then if inflation was 3%, your total return would be 1%. Well, now yields and tips, because interest rates across the board have come up, they've gone from negative 2% to almost positive 2% in a hurry because rates are rising everywhere. So what does this mean? It means tips are way more attractive. We haven't had yields this high since pre-great pre financial crisis. So what is, why does this matter? Well, back when yields were negative 2%, even higher inflation would be eaten up by that. So now you have positive 2% plus inflation. So that means your starting point is 4% higher from expected return level in a little less than a year. That's how much rates have come up. So let's say the Fed's able to bring inflation under control and they get it down to 3 or 4%. And, and interest rates just stabilize. They don't go down, they don't go up. We're talking about a 5 or 6% expected return in tips, taking away the variability of interest rates and inflation and all these things. That's amazing when you think about it. Let, or let's say they're, they're not as successful and inflation is 4 or 5%. I think this is a wonderful... So the, the general rule of thumb for tips is if they get to a 3 to 4% nominal yield, that's like a screaming buying opportunity. Because if you add inflation out of that, it, it, that's, that's about as good as you're going to get. That's very rare. The last time it happened in the last 20 years or so was 2008, and that was a brief period because people were throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which I, I don't know how that became a financial saying. Baby, like, does, does that happen? Like, I mean, usually I, It must have drain, happened. Right? For, for people to say it, it must have happened at some point. Back in the day. But so it happened. It's very rare. And even 2% is relatively rare. I, I honestly wouldn't expect these yields to last very long. 2% in tips is pretty darn attractive for me. Now, there are some caveats because Seamus is asking us, should I use, my, use this for my emergency fund? There is some variability here. We talked about this. Tips can lose money. But the thing is, with a 2% yield and inflation as the kicker, you have a much bigger margin of safety now if rates continue to rise. So yes, inflation protection is nice, but these securities can be volatile. So I've mentioned this before. It probably makes sense to stick with a short-term tips fund. You can get these at any fund provider, iShares or Vanguard or Charles Schraub or whatever. It's also possible these rates would fall during a recession, which would actually help push prices up, but then it could hurt your yield from there after that. So I don't know. We're in a very weird place right now in the markets, but this is the first time in a long time I've actually felt pretty good about bonds. And at least in the short to intermediate term, I'm probably, if I ever get bullish on something, which is rare, I'm probably more bullish on bonds than, than anything, which maybe is, is, a, is a reason to go against me here. But uh, th there's a lot of places to park your cash now. You have a lot of options. And, and tips as an inflation hedge makes sense, even though it can be a little volatile. You, uh, you're kind of looking like a hedge fund manager today. Maybe you should launch like a, a, bond, a bond hedge fund. Is that a thing? <sighs> Told you. The only reason I'm wearing my vest today is because it's a little chilly out, which, let's be honest, a vest... It's a useless article of clothing. The, it, I mean, it keeps your, your chest and your stomach warm, but your arms are just free. Your, your arms are still cold. Well, people in New York, I feel like honest. it's useful because I see people and I'm like, oh, they probably work in finance. It's, it's, right? I, and we talk, the only reason I'm wearing I had a, a little uh, chicken, egg, and cheese sandwich from Ch Chick-fil-A this morning. And I looked down right before we did this, and I had a piece of cheese just <laughs> all over my shirt. So that's why the vest well, is on. Well, we appreciate the vest then. All right. Okay. Next question. Up next, we have a question from Webb, who writes, The Setup. In 2020, my wife and I bought a home and took out a $550,000 jumbo loan at 3.25%. Part of that loan required us to give additional financial info so we could get a lower rate and our mortgage could be sold individually. Basic finance tells us that interest rates and bond prices are inverted, and as interest rates are mooning, uh, that would theoretically devalue our single home mortgage bond. 
The 30-year treasury is 3.6% risk-free. Who's going to want our mortgage on the books? The idea, if we were able to come up with the funds, we could go into the market and buy our own mortgage at an increasing discount. If we could, it would essentially end our mortgage, right? And the value we would gain would be the 3.25% interest, original loan amount minus current market value of loan. Am I big braining this too much? I'm going to say yes, because I don't even understand what this question is, hence me having trouble even reading it. But um, All right. I've, the, the general idea here, and I've heard a lot of people actually say something like this. The general idea is interest rates on government bonds and all these other things are now higher than the mortgage rate, right? So that puts you in a great position. So, John, do the chart on. This is, the, this is from John Burns, a realty research company. The distribution of primary residences with different rates for their mortgage. And you can see 73% of outstanding mortgages are locked in at below 4%. A third or below 3%. And 40% or so are 3 to 4%. So the idea that government bonds are now yielding more than your mortgage is puts you in a good position. A lot of people think, well, geez, if I just bought a 35 or 4% mortgage, I could essentially pay myself for free. And the, the income I earn on that bond would essentially pay for my mortgage, which sounds awesome in theory. I think they are big-braining this a little bit too much because, I mean, let's just think about this here. First of all, you probably couldn't get in there and buy your own mortgage. And I don't know why you would, that'd be kind of weird because they kind of package these together. But let's say you could, right? 30 year treasury is, is yielding around 3.5%. Um, you buy that bond and that, the, the income pays for your mortgage. But here's the thing you're not thinking about you have to pay taxes on that income, right? So every year you're paying taxes. So that kind of eats into your yield a little bit. You think you're probably making more. The other thing is, if, if you have to actually have that amount of money, so you have your $550,000, you have half a million dollars sitting in cash, now we're talking opportunity cost. So you could invest in those bonds and that the income would pay you. And it would sound cool. I mean, you tell your friends that at dinner. I, I don't know how many people are going to be really excited about a bond, but hey, I bought this thing that's paying for my mortgage. Isn't the simpler option if you have the cash, just pay the mortgage off if you really want your mortgage paid for? Right, because then then you're taking the payment away, and it's it's just it's simpler. You don't have to. It's it takes the middleman out. It takes a step out. The other thing is, what else could you do with that five hundred fifty thousand dollars? Because you're you're paying for your three and a quarter percent mortgage. What if instead you invested in the stock market and earned seven or eight percent? We're talking about leaving three to four percent on the table, right? Three percent per year over thirty years, the life of this loan is I don't know, on a half a million dollars, it's like three million bucks, right? You earn an extra three percent in the stock market, that's like three million bucks you're leaving on the table. So obviously. You can reinvest the money that you're not paying for your mortgage right now, and maybe you don't care about opportunity costs. But in that case, if you have the cash, just pay the mortgage off. Don't buy the bond to then pay yourself back for the mortgage. I think, as always, less is more in these things. And so, so I think the question is, if you have that much money, and not everyone has a half a million dollars just sitting around to, to buy, a, buy their own mortgage or, or buy a bond that pays for it, uh, just pay the loan off or invest that money into something else that can earn a higher return. Yeah, I feel like if if this question uh, was a film director, it'd be Christopher Nolan. This feels <laughs> this feels a lot like an Inception type type thing or something. It's it's interesting because I think a lot of people the the, the movements we've seen in interest rates have been so fast and so big that people go, "Wow!" I, I think just count yourself lucky you have that low interest rate and do everything you can to hang on to it. And so maybe don't pay it off at all and invest in something else because that that low rate is being eaten up by inflation. It, it's 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 a great asset to have, and I, I would just, yeah, don't overthink it. Yeah, good advice. Let's do another one. 
Okay, up next we have a question from Adam. Can we start a movement to set the Fed funds rate using a blockchain smart contract? Unemployment rate, inflation data, housing data, retail sale, sales, and industrial production ought to be enough to set up an algorithm that at least does halfway reasonable things all the time. The idea that we can cut rates to zero, then leave them there unnecessarily long, then raise them too quickly, and then too high is just crazy. All right. The, the, Fed is not, the, the Fed is not very popular right now. The question <laughs> is, like, I went on a little rant on the Fed this week in Animal Spirits. The question is, why was the Fed created in the first place? All right. From 1853 to 1933, the United States experienced a recession or depression once every 3.9 years. The average contraction in GDP during that time was 23%. It was, I mean, we were essentially an emerging market back then, but that's why the Fed was, one of the reasons the Fed was established in 1913 was to be the lender of last resort, because we kept having all these bank runs. And it was, it was actually the, the Panic of 1907, which I got some visuals, pretty good book on it here of the same name. Uh, this is when J.P. Morgan had to step in and essentially personally guarantee the banking system and kind of stop it. And then in 1913, they finally set up the Fed to help. And, and essentially the Fed is the lender of last resort. Now, I'm guessing an algorithmic Fed on the blockchain is probably not going to fly these days, but a lot of people think a rules-based framework with the Fed would make more sense. Like you said, some sort of rolling average of the unemployment rate or some other economic data. I mean, John, to the chart on, just look at how closely the Fed fund rate follows a two-year treasury yield over time. Now, you could say, well, the the two-year is getting its marching orders from the Fed funds rate, but you can see actually the two-year starts rolling over a lot of times before the Fed funds rate, and maybe they're just kind of predicting what the Fed's going to do, but market interest rates have done a pretty good job predicting what the Fed is going to do with short-term rates. And you can see right now the short-term rates are in the two-year is much higher than the Fed's rate, assuming that that assumes the Fed funds rate is going to keep coming up. But even if in a rules-based framework like this worked 95% of the time. It's probably that other 5% of the time that you want a governing body like this, and that's in a crisis. So I think as bad as I think the Fed has done recently trying to snap the economy's neck, I think they did an admirable job of keeping the financial system afloat during the pandemic. We That easily could have been the, the credit systems completely blew up and blew apart. The, the inner workings and the piping of the financial system could have easily gone under, and we could have had a Great Depression because of the pandemic, when the, the, the government was still trying to figure out how to send out checks and give people money. I, I think the Fed stepping in there was big. So, so I think you have to have them in those kind of times where, again, they are the lender of last resort when no one will step in. That happened with the Bank of England this week. It looked like a bunch of their pension funds were going to blow up. And because interest rates have been rising, and do you, because of the way that these pension funds are set up, do you really want mom and pop to have their pension blow up because – there's inflation and no. So the Bank of England stepped in and they put a stop to it. That, that's what you want them for. Uh, some people say, well, moral hazard. Well, guess what? That, that's what they're there for. They're the lender of last resort. They don't want a disorderly thing to fall apart just so some hedge fund manager can say he bought bonds for pennies in the dollar or whatever. So you could quibble with the, how the Fed handles the other 90% of the 5% of the time. But I think for the 5% of the time that we really need them in a crisis, that's probably why they're here. Uh, Anyway, so unless you want to go back to a system where we have a depression or a panic every three years, the, the Fed is probably better than, than a blockchain contract. Because the original blockchain contract was the gold as a, res, as a global reserve currency. We, we had to back up dollars with the gold, and that's part of the reason that we got this, because it was such a hard line, and the rules were too hard and fast. Yeah, and it should have been palladium, right? That would have made more sense. I, I don't really know my Fed history. Is there a Fed chair that is like looked back at as being like – 
you know, someone beloved in general, or are they always kind of do they always end up making people mad? At well, some the point? funny thing is, it's different. Alan Greenspan was beloved at the time, and now he's kind of hated because everything thinks he just blew bubbles. And then Paul Volcker was absolutely hated in the late seventies and early eighties for jacking up interest rates, and now he's loved. So it it kind of depends on when you're when you're talking about. Okay. If if he throws us into a recession, Jerome Powell is definitely going to be hated. I think right. people are going to hate him for missing inflation and sending us into recession. So uh, he's not going to be the most loved guy there is. Got it. All right, let's do another one. Next question. Okay, Tyler writes, I'm 35 and work for the government. I'll be able to retire at the age of 55 in 20 years, and my pension should pay me 80 to $100,000 a year. I'm still able to invest in a 457B and max it out, as well as my Roth IRA. Does it make sense to go all Roth for the 457B since my pension will be taxed as normal income when in retirement, since my pension money will act as fixed income bonds? So this is actually our second question with someone who has a pension, which is very rare. I think for my research I found from my retirement book, in the 1960s, like 60% of workers had pension that covered at least part of their income, and today it's like 17% and falling fast. So the we put out the bat signal here because there's a word Roth in here. So let's bring in uh, our favorite tax guy, Bill Sweet. <laughs> Bill Sweet. William Roth, my dad. Oh my All God. right. So the idea is they know they're going to have some income coming in. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out asset location here and maybe asset allocation. How does how does pension income impact tax planning here? And does that actually make it more sense for going all Roth? What, by the way, 457, was I right on that? Is that a nonprofit thing or is that a government thing? Yeah, it's a government and some states, agencies use them, uh, different than a 457F. If you're not in the comments section, there's some hot traffic going on about 457Fs. <laughs> all right. Can, can we just skip back, though? Can we go back to question three? Are, is really the solution to today's problems an algorithmic stable fed? Because like, <laughs> that's never gone wrong. Uh, look, to, look at Google, Terra, and Luna. Um, but let's get back to Tyler. Uh, people are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. Uh, Duncan, are you, are you, a, are you a, a Fight Club guy on the Fincher rankings where you were Zodiac, Gone Girl? Yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's good. I'm not like crazy about it like a lot of people, but it's a good movie. I, I pictured you to be a mankhead. Um, but no, great question, and congrats, Tyler. I think the, the interesting portfolio question is, would you treat a, a government pension as a bond, right? Because more or less, it's a, it's a very high amount of fixed income, right, that's coming in monthly. Um, but super-duper interesting question, uh, and a, a really great place to be, right? If, if you can max out a 457, that means you have the potential to save $20,000 a year, which is fantastic. Uh, so ultimately, 457s work a lot like 401ks. The concept there is the same. And the questioner, Tyler's thinking about, do I, do I, do I take this pre-tax, save the tax money now, or do I eat it as a Roth, take the tax now, and then I get tax-free distributions in retirement? So just some quick setting the stage. Uh, it's, let's just say Tyler's earning about $120,000, assuming this is all checks out. So he's probably at a 24% tax rate today, let's say 6% for a state. In the future, if he's, this is a great place to be, a $100,000 pension, right? Plus $30,000, let's say Social Security, plus let's say $15,000 or RMDs, he's going to have about $145,000, $150,000 of future income. That, that's just obviously fantastic. And Tyler's made some good decisions to get there where he is in life. So ultimately, the, my, my diagnosis, though, is current tax rate is probably going to be identical to his future tax rate. There's probably some nuance there in the state level we can debate and discuss, but I think the, the it depends on very much. So ultimately, it's just a question. Do I want to pay 
tax on $20,000 of income, $6,000 of tax. Do I want to pay that now or do I want to pay it in retirement? And I think it's more of a, a, a moral question. Like, do, do you want to have an account that is $500,000 30 years from now tax-free or let's say a $750,000 that you have to pay 100% of tax on? Without knowing everything, it's it's very, very hard to say, but I'm, I'm a big Roth guy. William Roth, my dad, uh, my father, That that's where I'd go with this. And I, I think a Roth IRA for somebody in there in their, with 35 my biases were in low tax nirvana. So that's the direction I'd go with this. But I but I think I think it's a toss up. Ben, what would you prefer? Well, you always tell me you made me switch my 401k to a Roth, so I'm gonna yeah. defer to you here. And uh yeah. Pay yourself, and yeah, do yourself a favor. And your kind of your kind of thing that you set up to me was at my stage in life, I'm in my early forties now, you said you're getting to that point where you're gonna reach up to higher levels of income. Like a Roth makes way more sense. Yeah. And I guess I think about it too. If you can save the same amount on a Roth as a regular, it feels yes. like you're saving more. That's it. That's it. Because ultimately, right? yeah, the after-tax value of that Roth is 30% higher in, in my math for Mr. Tyler than it is if it's pre-tax, right? So ultimately, he would have access to $6,000 extra of taxes that he wouldn't have paid. But ultimately, people usually don't take that into account, Ben, as you know. I think personal finance-wise, pay yourself first, pay the tax now, and ultimately you can enjoy that tax-free benefit later. And will that, he, will he be paying taxes on his pension in 20 years? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I Again, if you if you buy my argument, we're in low-tax nirvana, government spending you know, trillion dollars a year in excess of income, like ultimately that'll get recaptured at some point, inflation or not. So ultimately, yeah, I would expect his pension's going to be taxed, probably some nuance in the state, but I think it can be worked out. But I think at age 35, I, I'd still push into Roth now. Yeah, it seems like a good good point in life. And as far as like the thinking about pension income as a bond, yeah. it certainly allows you to take more risk because your portfolio doesn't have to fulfill as much of your income. So that's the way I look at it. It's not necessarily bond. It is it is income, but it's it's almost like you have a job that you're not working at. And right. so you have you, you have less income that has to come out of your portfolio. So does that for some people that gives them the peace of mind where they can take more risk. Other people yeah. say, "Why would I have to take more risk if I had this income?" So it depends on your risk risk tolerance, basically. Exactly, and this is the value of a financial planner. It's almost like we're in this business. We answer these questions for our clients every day and give them specific advice. But this is a great place for Tyler to be. Good luck to you. Yeah. Next question. Okay. Up next, we have a question from Mike. Uh, not to brag, but I'm a 64-year-old married retiree with $3.6 million of investments. I retired at age 59, no debt, and a $60,000 pension. Uh, we have been doing Roth conversions up to the top of the 24% bracket for the past four years, which usually results in about $180,000 Roth conversion per year. Currently, uh, currently we have $1.15 million in IRA and $1.657 in a Roth uh, plan is to continue conversions for at least the next five to six years. Goal is to have very little taxable income at 70 plus years of age. Roth conversion taxes calculate out to be about 1.4% of our investments. Can we withdraw around 5.5% to compensate for the Roth tax burden? I haven't attempted the math, but speculate we can safely take out more than 4% since future retirement accounts will essentially be all tax-free Roth. Duncan, I think we need a not to brag T-shirt that we send to the person I, who does the I, best no, not I, to brag yeah, every this week. Is a, this is a pretty good one. <laughs> I, I like this question. It's basically how do taxes impact withdrawal rates? So yeah. I've done the the research on Bill Bengen's four percent rule. The guy's been dining on that his whole life, right? I'm sure he goes to every financial conference he goes to. The guy never pays for a drink. It's great, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I've I've never really seen any work with this in terms of taxes. So Bill, this this can be your corner. You have to do the white paper on this and and be the person. But um, I don't think I've seen any work on this. If if you have the majority of your retirement assets that are tax-free coming out as a Roth, and you originally were going to go for the 4% rule because you're worried about paying some taxes too, 
Could yeah. you take a higher percentage out because you're not paying those taxes? Yeah, I, this is a great problem to have uh, for Mike, first off. Uh, but secondly, right. just thinking about it esoterically, the, the question I want to answer is how much Roth is too much, right? Um, but I think to answer Mike's specific question, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't factor in the Roth conversion because that you're not consuming those assets, right? If you're converting assets from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, that, that's really just future spending. You're just choosing to prepay your tax, right? And if ultimately, if, if the only debit there is the one point whatever percent of living expenses that are going to pay the taxes, all you're doing is just accelerating the tax that you would be paying in the future. When you've got R&Ds, when you've got other stuff going on, maybe your pension's higher there, God willing, it's COLA-adjusted, and compounding at 9% a year, that thing could double, right, in the next seven years, God willing. Or maybe not, because I don't want that inflationary environment. But moving moving back, ultimately, all he's, all he's doing is just prepaying tax, right? And ultimately, he's just pushing that consumption out into the future. I, I think this is very valid, and I, and I would think about it. But Ben, the question I want to look at is, if he's got 1.6, again, great for him, $1.6 million in Roth and $1.1 million in IRA, is that too much? Is that too much of a balance for somebody at 64? What, what do you think? Right. So I guess you're saying the idea is since he's paying the taxes now, his his balance could be bigger in retirement if he didn't pay the taxes now because he'd be saving that money and I mean, investing I mean, it. Yeah, but it depends on what game he's out. playing. Yeah. So right. I, th- I think my, my general theory, and this is the, the problem that I think Roth solve, is that people tend to optimize for their net worth when I really think they should be optimizing for is after-tax spending. Right. And so if I'm 64, right, just actuarially, how much time do I have left? 20 years? And ultimately, like what what I'm 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 doing these Roth conversions. I think it's wise to do that up to twenty four percent. But but what for? Right? What am I doing this for? And ultimately, at some point, you would want to think about: Am I am I doing this because I want to pass on these assets to my children tax free? This is a great thing to do. If it's a charitable intent, I would stop Roth conversions now because you can just give that IRA to charity and make the charitable beneficiary of a university, a public library, or something like that, and they can get all that money without you paying the tax. Right? So I think ultimately, I would sit down and maybe think about why am I doing this at this point? And I, I think somebody has got you know two-thirds or let's say 55% of their assets in, in Roth. It, it almost strikes me as that that's the limit. That's about as far as I would want to go. Right, they're almost like a 60-40. That seems like they've, they've got plenty of cover, especially with the pension too. Yep, yep. because ultimately when you get to 72, you have RMDs start to kick in. Like You, you are going to have continued tax issues going forward. And ultimately, if you have that very large Roth bucket, what is the plan? Like, What are you going to do with that? And I, I would start having some fun. After you sit down to knock it out, your 10-page dissertation on how taxes impact withdrawal rates. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have the introduction here on, on Portfolio The good Rescue. stuff. Uh, again, yeah. Mike, you need a financial planner, my man. Uh, you need to sit down with somebody competent. Maybe yeah, in a, he's in a great spot, but yeah, that, that's yeah. the time when you, you're right. What, what's the point of doing this? Are you doing this just for the sake of doing it because it makes you feel better, or is there actually yeah. a, a point to it? Yeah, and he's won the game. So I think when you win the game, you stop playing. Speaking of winning the game, we got one more here. Yeah, uh, let us know in the chat who wins, but not to brag of, of the day. Also, someone someone in the chat said, uh, I have a supermodel wife who wants a bigger home. What should I do? Uh, <laughs> it's not yeah, bad. Yeah. Portfolio uh, Rescue, where the salmon <laughs> flock like the Capistrano and yeah. all the beer tastes like wine. And, oh, yeah, my God. It's good stuff. Okay, uh, so up next we have a question from Mark. I'm 43 and have done pretty well. I have about $3 million in real estate with very little debt, $1.2 million, which was $1.5 in equities, but only about $30,000 in a Roth IRA. At some point, should I just eat the taxes and do a backdoor Roth? <laughs> All right. Mark's, Mark's doing pretty well here. <laughs> pretty well. Uh, yeah. the, the majority of his, his net worth is tied up in real estate. Does that, does that tie into this at all? Does that matter at all? Or do you think if, if he's got the majority of this money in taxable accounts, he should just suck it up and do it at this point. Can I do a quick thing? 
like the, these are great questions for big problems for millionaires. And I don't know what percentage of the portfolio rescue audience, but I think we need some questions from the people. I, I think we, I think we need to get populist with this. Um, but to, to hit here, March- here's the, wait, here's the way that I think about it though. Yeah. So I, I worked in the institutional world and I was dealing with, is that where you got that vest? But I was, I was working with portfolios that had, uh, eight, nine, 10 figures, like, right. And the way I thought about it after a certain point is, it's just an extra zero. It's all yeah. the same. These people are all dealing it's with the same, same problems. Same questions. In a lot yeah. of ways, obviously, there's more comfort here when you have a seven-figure portfolio yeah. when you're in your 40s. But it's it's still the same questions and the same worries. The math That's is more the, fun when it's big numbers. It's right. true. Yeah. So let's, a little, let's, let's, yeah. Just, let's just pretend Mark has uh, $3,000 in real estate. <laughs> okay. And, uh, so, right. so, so yeah, so a ba- I mean, a backdoor Roth isn't going to solve your problem, right? I mean, you can stick $6,000 into a backdoor Roth IRA. So I think he's asking a different question, actually, than what he, what he said. I think he's saying, should I Roth convert? And, and the, the year that I would Roth convert would maybe be a year, I don't know, U.S. equities are down 20%. Maybe our bonds have taken a hit, too. And maybe, we're down- oh, I'm describing this exact scenario, right, where we've been had a punishing year, and ultimately the cost of converting is going to be lower if we expect our future returns to be higher. So, yes, uh, without knowing Mark's full situation, Again, I would urge him to hire a financial planner to help answer this. But yeah, he's probably got a 40-year runway right on life, maybe 45 years. Ultimately, this is a great time to think about it because we've been we've been punishing year. Unless he's been in cash this whole year, he's probably down 20 or 30% in his equities. And ultimately, this is a great year to consider it because the taxes are going to be low today on any amounts he chooses to convert. Let's go back to question three. Uh, the questioner was thinking, okay, well, I'm going to fill up my 24% bracket. I think that's the thing to think about, Mark. If you count in all your income this year, where are you going to be in the tax code? Where does it make sense? And that's the starting point that I'd, that I'd look at. And you've got about three weeks, three months to, to figure it out between now and the end of the year. But I think you've got a golden opportunity in 2022. All right. Roth wins again. Yep. Uh, someone <laughs> asked if this is actually an official Federal Reserve vest. And it's not because if it was a Fed vest, I would have already lost my shirt and I'd be wearing just the vest because the Fed has made everyone lose oh. money this year. Yeah, it's Burn puffy, on. but it's not, it's not inflated. The inflation is, is not right. very high. One more announcement here. This was sent to us yesterday. I've been pounding the table on this all year. U.S. Senator Deb Fisher introduced yesterday with Senator Mark Warner raising the annual I-bond purchase limit for individuals to $30,000 when inflation is over 3.5%. Now, I got, a, I got an email from someone in one of the offices of these senators, and they said, like you've said over and over in many of your now classic rants to Michael and Duncan about I-bonds, the Treasury Department's lack of action raising the arbitrary limit, we doubled the limit for individuals to $30,000, returning the purchase limit to where it was originally when I-bonds were first introduced in the Clinton administration, which I didn't realize. Business and trust accounts would not be eligible for the increased cap. We keep the focus on inflation relief for families and individuals. I'm not saying I help craft bills in the Senate, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I pounded the table and we got it done. Sean yeah. Patrick Maloney, Chuck Schumer, I hope you're listening. We did it. Carlson 2024. This is, yeah. we need confetti. Right. We did it. it this yeah. hasn't I mean, gone through yet, but yeah, it sounds like we're going to get $30,000. And th- I love the rule. Someone asked if we could have an algorithmic Fed. We have an algorithmic I-bonds. When inflation is high, yeah. you increase. I think that's great. Ease, ease the pain of the people. Although backstage we were talking, ironically, this could potentially increase inflation by getting more more money out there into the economy. Hey, which hey, is hey. Interesting. let's uh, yeah. you know, let's just take a win while we have. Hey, it. this yeah. increases. This actually increases savings, though, Bill. It's yeah, less no, spending. that's true. That's true. Right. And that, we'll see. That's if the, I hope this goes through. It sounds yeah, great. Me too. All right. Thanks again to Bill, as always, helping us on those Roth questions. We get like forty-five Roth questions a week. I love it. Uh, Keep them coming. Thanks, thanks everyone for watching live in the chat. We always appreciate it. 
Uh, leave us a review. Hit that subscribe button. If you're in YouTube, leave us a comment or a question. We always look at the questions there. If you have a question for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. Also, uh, to our Florida viewers, be safe. Yes. It's uh, scary down there. Yeah, Amen. seriously. Thanks, everyone. Stuff. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today.